0: Hello, I'm Scott Button, and you're listening to Really Queer Voices, a new podcast where I get to talk to some of the most interesting queer artists working in theatre, film, drag, and beyond. These conversations were recorded on the unceded, stolen territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the tsleil Nations, which is also where the artists we spoke to reside. thrilled about the episode today. We're talking to Continental Breakfast, Vancouver drag superstar and multi-hyphenate artist. We talk about the story behind their iconic name, the birth of the group The Darlings, and the triumphant return of local drag. Yeah, now they've <laughs> arrived. Yeah, it's official. I'm <laughs> here for the podcast. <laughs> Yay, and I'm so glad you are. Welcome Continental Breakfast to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. And for folks who don't know, Continental Breakfast is an Indigenous, non-binary drag performance artist and cultural event producer. They are Beardies and Okamassi's Cree and are a settler on the stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. They work as a host, dancer, and performer in the alternative art scene. They aim to help empower strong existence of the non-binary community and the importance of diversity in art. They are Mprex 47 of the Dogwood Monarchist Society, having worked to raise $32,000 in their year as the charity's representative. They have produced shows such as Late Night Snack, Blackout, a Britney Spears drag musical, and The Darlings. They also co-founded the Vancouver production company Queer Based Media. Welcome. You sound like a very busy person. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to stay relevant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Isn't trying that really hard? That's the struggle for all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, um, your your name, Continental Breakfast, is actually probably top three of my favorite
1: drag names ever of all time that top three. I've, yeah i have to say if not my favorite oh i was gonna say i was like is that like an undecided top three or does that mean like i'm third place <laughs> it, de- it definitely means you're probably first place oh, i, I just I, I just i just didn't want to sound like i was blowing smoke
0: or like that. i was trying to try to love you up too much uh, um tell us the story of of the
1: name what's what's behind the name yeah, I guess um, when I was a kid, I grew up in, like, a very white suburban town. It was, like, an oil town in Alberta, and um, everyone used to tell me there that I I looked so exotic or I looked uh, continental. was, like, this weird thing that, like, old white ladies would say to me that oh, I looked my very continental or, like, they because they didn't know where I was from, and they thought it was, like, a compliment, but really I was just, like, that's racist. <laughs> like, I'm from here, like, definitely from here, like... Where are you from, ma'am? So I kind of, like, wanted to take that and make it into something uh, more tangible for myself and, like, something digestible for me. And continental sort of is used as this, like, word that's supposed to sound so dignified. And um, something about the art world that I don't like in general is that, like, I don't know, outcasting of queer people because we're not deemed high art or like drag is not deemed high art in these, you know, refined areas of the industry. And I think I I, I put breakfast after to put like a, just a, a wink at the end of it showing that I don't take this too seriously. Like I don't take anything too seriously because I don't think that, I don't know, my work needs to be like rooted in pain and trauma and sorrow to be of depth and importance and so I wanted it to be something like joyful and funny and you know something that's not a play on words like a lot of drag names people are like what's the word play there and I'm like oh there is none it's literally (laughs) just like the breakfast at a hotel you get for free and I think that also like that concept taking something that people know so well like anyone has like such a refined memory of Having a continental breakfast and it's always like subpar, dry (laughs) muffins that are really small. (laughs) Like you heat up, you have the waffle
0: iron that you have to pour the liquid in. You got to spin it. If you don't spin it, it burns. Or those
1: like cereal turners that you like dispense them, but they always break up your Fruit Loops and then you get all the like crumbs because you're trying to like jam it out and Fruit Loop powder. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's in common misery like in the morning, but they're there (laughs) because it's like free and they're like not complaining because (laughs) you know. So I figured if people didn't like me, they would here for a free breakfast if I was announced at a show. <laughs> yeah, the applause is actually for a free breakfast and for the idea of a free breakfast.
0: <laughs> First off, those ladies calling you continental, that's so fucked up. And so and, so, and so and so weird and like such a strange adjective to settle on. And I, and I love that you took that with you and you have reclaimed it and 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 made it your own. And I think another one of the things I love about the name is that it makes me think. And you have put so much thought
1: into it. Good, thanks. Yeah. And also, like, if people take a meaning from it, I'm usually just like, "That's exactly right, honey. You nailed it." Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like your name is sort of the
0: Rorschach test. Yeah. Of, exactly. Of They'll names. Be like, is yeah. it
1: because like you know you travel with your art and like therefore like you're providing. Nourishment to rebuild up and stuff, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, that's a, it's like all <laughs> that. Yes, it. I'll add it to the the CV. <laughs> you know, like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And so, for folks who don't know who are listening, who who else is in the Darlings? And and you, you spoke a little bit about how you came to be, but give us the origin story if you could.
1: Yeah. So, um, PM and I. So the the group is myself, PM, Rose Butch, and Made in China, and we started, I think. Four years ago now? Three years? Uh, 2018. September 2018 was our first show. What, September is, what is time
0: these days anyway? Yeah, I yeah. was like
1: the last year and a half evaporated. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's three years. And um, we, me and PM were doing a lot of drag together at the time. And I just started drag. Like, I was six months into doing drag, I think. I had started in May. And this was like just after the summer. And... Um, PM and I were doing late night snack at Savon Meats. So we were rehearsing together all the time and dancing. And we had started kind of doing those numbers at that show because we realized our audience was like really engaged and we were able to like experiment with different types of performance and it was being well-received by them. And we got this uh, photo shoot. PM got contacted by Sean Allister, who's a photographer and multimedia artist, who's like amazing, completely brilliant person who actually emailed me today I didn't get to read it yet but I was like oh exciting (laughs) I don't even know what it's about but he's just like so brilliant and um he styled us for this photo shoot out of all of our looks and PM decided that they because um they were asked to curate four people them and three others and they were like oh I think it should be all non-binary people and so at the time it was us four and then there were other uh, non-binary artists, of course, like, obviously, like, Boy and Dust and um, uh, Alma Bitches and, you know, like, really iconic people. And um, I think that we were kind of just, like, I don't know. We were all really working at the time. Like, we were all really invested in drag. Rose had won uh, the Legends Calendar Contest and... Um, made in China had won the Mr. Miss Cobalt all-stars competition, entertainer of the year PM was Vancouver's next drag superstar. The so accolades,
0: were all, Henny. Yeah. Work. They were like <laughs> in the zone. Right. Yeah.
1: And so, um, I think they PM curated us together. And then once we got together, we realized, Oh, we are all having these same needs from drag where we want to delve into it more emotionally and be more vulnerable with people and show like the darker side of this art form. But we didn't have anywhere to do it, so we decided we were just going to do a show together. So we did it in, like, this little rave box. I used one of the photos from the photo shoot that Sean took of us, and we made it into a poster, and we started writing our first show, and we took about a month and a half of a lot of rehearsals. We've gotten way faster at writing shows, but that first one, I'm pretty sure we did, like, it felt like three weeks almost straight. (laughs) We were in that room, like, every day, trying to figure out how to make this space work because, like, there was no moving lights. They were all just, like, plugged in and, like, button pressed. And we had to, like, use extension cords and hold park hands on each other during each other's numbers and then, like, unplug them to end the number. And, like, we decided we wanted to have multiple stages because we couldn't do, like, a curtain or a light change on stage. So we ended up having, like, six stages throughout the room and then had people move... As the show happened, they would, like, turn around and realize, like, oh, the number's happening behind me now. And then we that would allow us to change costume when they were not paying attention. And all those kind of, like, building blocks live in our format now still. So it's interesting that that first show we decided to do, if we just, like, naturally wrote it, decided on these pieces and these games we wanted to play on stage for people as performance these tasks these foods we wanted to eat all these things that eventually we we now incorporate like most of those aspects in our show still and i think we've done like i want to say like 15 shows 16 shows 16 hour long shows wow
0: yeah wow that's 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 fierce we i remember yeah i watched i watched um one of the early shows during the pandemic and i was so struck an A- west was here yesterday and and they pointed out, they they, they referenced the darlings and, and I and I remember watching that show and I was so struck that what I felt this this feeling that I get from the best queer art that everything is up for grabs you know, that you can marinate in all these different styles and you can marinate in high and low, as you were saying, high low, high, high art, high, low art, it's all accessible to you. And it can still feel cohesive and it can still have production value. And not that, you know, production value and money and whatever is the metric of, of that, but it still felt, it felt so cohesive and yet so, like there was so much going on too.
1: Nice. Yeah, we want to try to like, incorporate all aspects of drag that we love because I think that people sometimes I think since the Darlings had formed after like a couple years of it we started to get like kind of categorized outside of like a different type of drag like so alternative you know like so on the fringe you know that they always describe it as being like on the outskirts of it when really like we also love that type of drag as well, or, like, the pageantry of, like, a Miss Continental pageant, <laughs> say, yeah, you know, or, yeah. like, big wigs and gowns and, like, you know, I, we like all that as well. So we like to incorporate frivolities and joy and, like, pleasantries as well as, like, really depressing shit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, d- yeah, d- the the depressing shit and the kind of dark shit. I love what I perceive as the willingness to shock and the willingness to provoke and the willingness to sort of step outside of your own comfort or what I perceive as your own comfort zone and allow the audience to step outside. I think of drag artists and, and, you know, a lot of musicians, pop artists is that, that watching you all fulfills the dream within, you know?
1: Thank you so much. I, I, I find like, I feel so lucky that we like found each other in our group and, literally like we just never have conflict and i say that and oh my i i don't really believe in like in jinxing or like superstition but we just ne- like literally never have had even a like an argument or like a a even like yeah disagreements are so easily communicated with the four of us and like we yeah it kind of almost happened like by accident pm curated us for this photo shoot we kind of just looked at each other when we all talked about how we had these concerns with some of the spaces we were performing and they weren't necessarily that welcoming to pieces that were emotionally evocative like you're talking about. Or like, you know, some people aren't at the club to watch like me get my fingernails cut by Rose and crying on stage. You know, like it doesn't always suit the environment and we realized that we needed to make a space for ourselves to be able to do that fully And then once we pulled into those, like, darker places of, I don't know, our identities, our existence, like, our pasts, our traumas, you know, once we started digging into those, we realized that we still had this inkling towards performing things that were joyful and, like, making things that people will laugh about and smile about and, you know, feel better about themselves, inspired, like, all, we still wanted those incorporated in our show while still showing, like, there's a lot of pain with being queer, and growing up that way and like even though the four of us couldn't be more different there's just like something tying us together yeah you know, yeah all of our drag is so different it's like it, it yeah we i couldn't um i couldn't have planned any of that none of us could have planned it at all because there's just something tying us and it makes so much sense when we write shows together it happens really easily people ask if it's like this like scolding process but like it's so fulfilling for me it's just we just have to schedule the time and we know that like together we'll come up with something that will work and then our goal with every show is that everyone has at least one thing they can relate to in that show or something that they really felt and it's completely different for everyone like Yeah, I'm never expecting the feedback that we get with the shows or like moments that people remember distinctly. I'm like, oh, my it's so interesting because it's something so different with every person, because I think our numbers are like completely pulled from different parts of our past, present or, you know, just how we see the world. And I think trying to make those concepts relatable and like show other people that we feel that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And because your shows are so eclectic, I'm not surprised to hear that audience members will come up and say, Oh, that's the moment. That's the moment. That's the moment. Like it, it 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 makes sense in terms of what what you offer as as a group. I'm always humbled when I hear about the amount of work that drag performers and drag artists put into their craft you're never just a performer. You're never just posing for <laughs> photos. You're doing every gosh darn thing. You're writing, you're dramaturging, you're directing, you're sound designing, you're your technical director, you're your production manager. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, stage you're, manager. Stage like, manager. It,
1: caterer. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Makeup, hair, costume. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just like counselor, <laughs> like making <laughs> the posters, like it all. Yeah. It. it was, it's such a process. Like so much goes into the media surrounding the show too. Like, Because, I don't know, those first few shows, like, hardly anyone came. I really love the people that did come, and I appreciate you so much if you're listening to this. (laughs) But it was, like, it was 69 people at our first show. So we, like, lost money and well, i will
0: say i've done many independent theater shows with less than 69 people <laughs> oh,
1: and in fact
2: 69
0: people would be a revolution of numbers in a lot of the shows that, Dumb... like,
2: that would be a sold out havana wouldn't it <laughs> yeah,
0: i believe i believe i believe so but i but i hear you in terms of the investment it's like it's like oh my goodness we lost yeah, money. yeah.
1: and especially with like a uh, production on drag shows i had found a format like throwing events that to make money you know, by like still paying a lot of people and like spending a bunch of money, but making that back through ticket sales and like understanding that balance. So at the time, I was like, "Oh, that was a hit because me and p m were doing a full save on meets every two weeks at that point. you know, so there we were that that was like less than half of that audience size. and there was twice as many people in the show. So we were like, what's happening? You know, and then it it took like there's it was the first, like three were still pretty slow. And only re- only this Halloween that we did, we finally did, like, a, like a big, full, huge room. But, like, we were doing – our first sellout was in Victoria, actually, because we got booked to go there, I, I think, like, five or six shows in, maybe five shows in. And there was a 200-person room there, and we got there and we sold out really fast, I guess. Wow. The promoter told us, and we were like, oh – that's surprising. Oh, well, look at us. Okay, we love Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess we love the city now. <laughs> yeah, it was so cute. So then we went to the show and had, like, the most amazing time. Like, people were, like, they gave us a standing ovation, and we were like, oh, my God. Like, we, we got to come back here for sure. Like, it felt so good to perform there, and there were so many queer people, so many trans people that were, like, crying right in the front. We're like, this is definitely an audience for us. We love it here, and... I think that we kind of stopped doing shows in Vancouver for a little while because we realized that, like, we had an out-of-town draw. It was so cute when we were there, honestly. Like, we were, like, smoking a cigarette outside before the day of one of our shows, and someone, like, went by on a a bicycle and was like, hey, darlings! (laughs) Like, we were like, oh, my God. Like, it was so nice, and we still go there a lot. Like, we just went there for uh, Intrepid Theatre and performed at the Metro And did two shows there. And, yeah, we just always have, like, such a amazing time there. But now, when we did the Halloween show, it was major. There were so many people we knew there, people that had been at every single show, and then including, like, this whole new audience that we reached during the pandemic. And we all finally got to gather together, and it was just like, wow. It felt like people had, like, it was like, people get the show now, you know? People get what we're doing. Because, like, you know, if you lose money on, like, four shows of the same format, same cast, you know, you're like, oh, like it can be disheartening a little bit. But then we did that, that first pandemic quarantine show was like way bigger than anything we had done. And it ended up getting up to 10,000 views on that first film. And like the audience was so big during the Facebook thing. Like my goal was 300. I was like, 300 would be great online, you know, because that's like a big venue, everyone's at home (laughs) like there's nothing else going on like please watch please watch and then when we got taken down we were freaking out and the censorship happened and we were like facebook facebook took you down uh someone reported us during our first show so 45 minutes into the show it stopped and then we had to finish the show and then reroute it to vimeo and get our whole audience to go there to watch the last 15 minutes of it but in the like the drama of it all, and I'm having, like, a panic attack in my apartment, um, there was, uh, yeah, someone in the comments was, like, it's at 4,300 views. And we were, oh. like, what? What the, f- what the fuck? And I was, like, no, that's a mistake. And then I, like, checked, and I watched it climbing, and it was, like, going so fast that I was, like, oh, my God. So I was crying, like, freaking out, just being, like, we just got to finish the show, we gotta finish the show, like, get everyone in a Vimeo and, like, uh, trying to upload it. And... It was like, it ended up being this whole experience, but yeah, it was like, it felt traumatizing for us. And then, but it, the reception of it was so great that we were like, oh my God, we have to do another one. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, we did it by donation and people were just like so generous and it like saved us that first, cause that first two weeks, like artists and performers, we were not accommodated for by CERB or, you know, like they kept releasing these subsidies, but we still weren't. Like gig workers still weren't on there. We were like, "What the hell is gonna happen? Like, what do we do?" And it when the lockdown happened, I called P. I was like freaking out. I cry all the time. Um, You're an crying. artist. You're an artist. Yeah, and a Gemini. Every single people like, "Sorry, I'm crying." I'm like, I literally cry every single day. I'll probably cry today um, during this interview. <laughs> but yeah, I like um, Bonnie Henry announced that we were going to be on lockdown, and I called PM, and I was like we have to do something like everything got canceled for like six months of gigs. We've just like, I got emails. My phone was just buzzing. Cancel, 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 cancel. So I went from like full income to zero and didn't have a backup job. Like had only been doing drag full time for like years by that point. And yeah, so I called PM. I was like, we have to do something. I think we need to do a show and I think we need to do it on our webcams and we need to, try and simultaneously perform a show together like we would live, but from our own apartments. And they were like, no, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not. Like, And they were like, you're, you're bananas. Yeah. They're like, that's not (laughs) happening. And I was like, I really, really think it's a good idea. They were like, okay, well, you know, they're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Let's not like, we're not doing anything. Like, let's fucking do it. Call the other two. So then I called them one at a time and I was like, Hey, so uh, I think we should do this. And I think it was like 11 days I gave us, I was like, and I think we should do it in 11 days before the end of the month. You can't, you, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, you had all of this certainty in, in that moment, it sounds like. It was like 20 seconds, I swear. Like I wow. found out and I was like, oh, shit, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, what would work here? Like what would actually work for a show that isn't just like on Instagram live playing music from like a calculator and it like sounds like terrible and you know all these things in my head and I was like no we could troubleshoot this and manage to try and make a visually pleasing actual film that people would want to watch that's not you know with like the technical difficulties that come with doing a live show and you're not supposed to do a stream for that many people from a shitty apartment on Granville. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. my Wi-Fi was terrible. Like, it was all working against us. It was so bad. But then, yeah, I called the other two and they were like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Like, we got time. And then we rehearsed like almost every day for like hours, like three, four hours. Just, like, trying to get our music to sync with each other so that our lip syncs weren't off and, like... All rehearsing remotely. Rehearsing remotely from our places. We didn't... Yeah, because we, like, literally weren't leaving our places at that point. I was ordering groceries online. Like, I was not even leaving my front door. Those early days of the pandemic. Yeah. Like, full-on quarantine. And I think that, yeah, we... Those kept me sane. I was, like... I had work to go to every day. It was no time to write a show. It was so short. Like and then yeah we there was like the next like we checked our phones after the show and it was just like 99 plus instagram 99 plus emails 99 plus text messages and i was like we've i've never done a show that had that type of reaction to it i felt so tuned in with like everyone i'd like we were so short into the pandemic, I'm, but that was the time where we were like counting days. Remember, we were like, "It's been 21 days," you know, and here we I are. I remember like, those
0: early. And remember when we thought it was later. just going to be a weekend? Yeah. I remember like, oh, we'll just quarantine for the weekend, and we'll just like stay well, home. I remember and we're... being
2: like, two weeks of this. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you oh, going to yeah.
2: actually make me stay home for two, two weeks? weeks?
1: Yeah. Now here we are, almost two years later. Yeah. Yeah, and and, you know. and talking behind masks, which is yeah. which is good, and, you know. But and that yeah, show, the show that we're talking about, was eight shows ago for the Darlings.
0: Wow, wow! <laughs> yeah. So you 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 folks are prolific, <laughs> especially. as It sounds like that was such a uh, you know the show you mentioned in Victoria and the and this hugely successful early quarantine show seems to have propelled you as a group into this
1: whole new level. (laughs) It really, it changed a lot. Like it just reached the, like the public, even like, cause we got that CBC documentary after the first one got taken down. And then we announced our second one. And then the CBC called us that night when our, after our show gotten taken down, I was, like, sitting there with my roommate, my drag child, Shasha, and I was, like, sitting there freaking out, being like, this is all shit, like, the apartments destroyed, like, all, of, like, <laughs> there's clothes everywhere, like, it was just, like, yeah. all of our places were destroyed yeah. after it was each show, the just dark, so The dark night knows. of the soul. Yeah, yeah, everyone thinks that it was, like, those little boxes that were, like, curated, but everything that you didn't see was a disaster. And then, yeah, the CBC called that night, and they were just, like, we want to run a documentary on what just happened. Wow. Um we were wondering if you were planning on doing anything else. And we had already talked about it. Like when we saw our phones, we're like, we have to do a second show because that like people just essentially paid for us to do a second show. So we like owe it to them to do another one, you know? And we're like, we're going to make it free. Like both shows we just did by donation. And we're like, we can make another show. It'll be free for people to watch. We can't have any explicit content in it. Cause even the little tiny bit, like PM was showing their feet when we got reported, that was it. And they were fully clothed, like no nudity, and someone deemed it explicit, so that's why it got taken down. So our second rehearsal process, we were like, we're going to write this, we're going to do like a family-friendly Darlings, essentially, or like a Facebook-friendly Darlings, because it was the site that gave us the most reach and like most actual people that are able to just like come across it and watch. And the, yeah, the CBC were documented our whole production process of that show and then they um or wait what am i thinking no sorry it was after the second one because we got taken down a second time too or in quarantine too we got reported again even after doing the family friendly one so we were like this is garbage we're really angry (laughs) of course (laughs) we're depressed like we none of us even like we didn't really talk even for like days after it happened because the first time it was cute you know there was like an experience attached to it people were like whoa like technological age like we're all in quarantine let's all go switch sites like no one is doing anything second one I was just like angry I was like yeah this is so much work we've put into this and like for one person to just be like "Mm, nope I don't think so and that room to be so shut down like there was like 300 people watching the second show when it got taken down and it was re- way sooner into the show. Like, it was, like, I think 15 minutes into the show. No. When it got oh, censored no. rather than 45. And, like, for from a financial standpoint, even, like, it exactly replicated that. So, like, we made exactly a quarter of the money that we did on the first show compared to, like, how much time we were on screen for. So they, like, cut our financial ticket price for the show, essentially, and also our viewership. Right. And so we were like, we can't do that again. Like, there's no way to, it's too much of a risk. And then the Queer Arts Festival and CBC reached out for us at the same time. The Queer Arts Festival said, we want to present a digital festival of films. And we want to broadcast your film, a film that you make a new one that's uncensored and that you, we're going to get a private site for it. Because at first they were like, we're doing a film festival. And we were like, no, we're going to get taken down. And then I was like, if you have your own website broadcasting it, then no one could actually come in and report it. Then we'll do a show. And they were like, no problem. We were like, oh, great. (laughs) It's like, oh, I could just ask for things and and get them? We were like, like, imagine. Cool, yeah. So, like, the Queer Arts Festival was just amazing. And they, uh, like, let us use their theater. And it was really interesting at the time because that was when Bubbles were first introduced. And... P.M. Maiden and I were in a social bubble, but Rose wasn't because they were still working their day job. And so we weren't allowed to come within six feet of Rose. And so that's kind of partially what the documentary was about too, like working through a process of a show with COVID existing within the four of us. And yeah, so then we did the, doc- did the documentary that came out and that brought in like the CBC people, like a literal public which also comes with a lot of hate like it was anytime i've been interviewed for the cbc or like ctv or global national i can't read through the comments anymore because they're like horrendous they go like the it goes on forever and it's just like people being like saying the worst thing you could think of and um but it also brought in like a whole new audience of people that I never expected. Right. The floodgates open. And then some of what comes in is is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like some of it is like straight people and like allies and people that like, I have never met that are like working at a restaurant being like, Hey, I saw the darlings film. I saw a documentary on the CBC. So I watched your film that came out right after that. And yeah, that it was a, an intimate group that was pretty much always the same for the first few shows. It was usually the same people coming every time, and now it's like, yeah, our Halloween show was amazing. It was like a huge room filled with people. It was just like unbelievable, felt so good oh i love I love that I, as you're talking, I'm thinking of something a
0: producer writer friend of mine she she directs and produces films. She was talking about writing her own scripts and and the experience of producing your own work and she had this analogy of like when you meet somebody who you know came from a loving home, you really can tell. And then she said, "And when you're making a project that has been marinating in love and that everyone who has created it has worked so hard and has put in true love into it, you can also tell. And that's how I feel whenever I see something that The Darlings has done is that that's always where it's coming from. And and you can tell. And I think that's
1: why people are connecting with you all right, right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it means a lot. It's, like, it was hard because usually at a show you can feel, you know, people cheering or clapping or you talk to them right after, but we didn't get to feel any of that. Like, with those shows, we were just, like, having to be, like, no, people they they'll like this you know like people are sad at home like they'll want to watch a show you know like and having to stay so focused because like there was no audience interaction besides like the digital stuff like the chat which was amazing and like people leaving all these comments and like well wishes but you know there's something about like being in that room with people that makes a big difference and I think that you know that's why probably why I'm shocked whenever people are like oh I watched a show during this, the, the summer of last year or whatever I'm like oh feels like a lifetime ago because even after that film at the queer arts festival, we then made one for the transform cabaret festival in the same format, but new show. And then we did, we went back into quarantine and then did darling's quarantine three, which was back on zoom on our cameras again. But that was on queer based media because we got the queer based media site so that we could have a live digital venue for anyone to use rather than just us. So, that no one could would get taken down. And, and so, tell us uh,
0: tell us a bit about queer queer based media. Is was this
1: is your brainchild? Me and Maya Richie started queer based media, um, and we did it in response to being censored so much. And we were already making video and design and photography work together, and we realized that we needed to open this space online for people to be able to actually like have some agency over what they're putting out for people because like we have no agency over our bodies on things like Facebook and you know, Instagram. It's so censored. It's like, they're like woman hating platforms, police loving platforms. They're like, it's endless. And it's, I think that, yeah, we needed a space to be able to have drag shows <laughs> when you reduce it. you know, like we wanted queer artists to be able to put their work online and not worry about someone reporting it. And what a, what a great offering to the queer community. I, I just want us to
0: take a quick quick break. Sweet, yeah. I, I, I wanna hear a little bit about Continental Breakfast, they seem to have such a refined point of view, clear artistic goals a real sense of themselves Does as an, as, as an artist. And, 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 you know, and from, from, from what I know, from what I know of you. Um, and so how did you become that person? How, what, what was in between being that person and being the person in the little Alberta oil town? Like what, what how did you go from, from that person with those dumb ladies saying <laughs> stuff into to being this very articulate artist?
1: I'm really glad it seems that way because I'm, <laughs> it's trying, all a I'm trying really hard to keep it together. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I've honestly like there's been some shit, you know. Like it's been there's there was really dark days, and you know I, I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic, and I'm gonna be six years sober on January eighth, which That's is fantastic. Exciting. Um, Congratulations. Thanks. And I think, you know, I'm very depressed and I'm medicated for that now. And I think that I, it took me a really long time to be even feel like I had anything to say. You know, I, I, I was like a self-hating, undeserving person in my head. That's what I thought for a really long time. And I spent like a decade doing that you know, like blacking out like every day and, you know, just getting sick. I was so sick and harming the people around me just like by being chaotic and destructive. And, you know, it was, it was like such a, I don't know. I think it was such an isolating thing for me that I had to, I lost everyone, you know, and like I have had to develop this new relationship with myself where I feel like I deserve something better. And for a long time, I felt like I didn't deserve anything. Like, I literally threw out all my things and, like, you know, made sure that I (laughs) had no relationship with anyone because I didn't care about anything besides using. And I think I was using as a symptom of, you know, these other things that I was trying to avoid, like the fact that I was depressed or the fact that I had so much trauma from when I was a kid and when I moved here, I thought that I was, I was closeted and I thought that I was just like a gay man. That's what I thought I was hiding all this time. But I always knew it was more complicated because like I had loved women and when I was really young, I'd never met anyone non-binary until I was like 22. And I think that I, I, th- when I came out of the closet initially when I was, like, 20, it took me a long time because I was, like, dating women, and I was like, you know, this, like, it, I was like, I don't know if I'm just gay. Like, it seems weird. I don't want to, like, like lose this other part of my life. And then when I came out, I was like, okay, I'm gay now. You know, like, I can finally be with men. Like, I've wanted all this time. And then, like, as I dated men, I realized I was like, wait, I think it's actually, like, a lot more, complicated than that you know because then I dated a woman again and like you know I was like back and forth and then I met a non-binary person (laughs) and I was like oh my god and I started watching drag and this was after I'd gotten sober after a long time I got sober and that kind of helped me realize that I wasn't just like one thing and I think that people always think of gender identity or gender clarity we can call it as this like destination you arrive at and you're there and it's like carnegie hall and you're just like let's celebrate i'm here and i'm fully discovered you know i made it yeah and it's not that for anyone it's not it's constant change and growth and like nothing is more fluid than that you know and I realized that I was non-binary and bisexual, and I'm attracted to all kinds of people. And, you know, I started to find my voice when I realized that, like, I think that we all deserve a better life. And I think I can—one skill that I've had since I was young was— being able to make people feel good about themselves (laughs) and make them feel happy and that they can do whatever they want or wear whatever they want, like me and dress like a psychotic fashion clown (laughs) and, you know, like twirl around the streets and make people happy because when I was watching drag, I realized that I could bring, yeah, I could bring joy to people and I can make them laugh. And I was doing comedy for a really long time before I did drag Um, I worked for an improv theater company called Sin Peaks and it was like a weekly improvised soap opera and I worked for them for like seven years and I was doing stand-up comedy and I was performing for just cis straight people and I was always getting categorized by directors as like this like feminine you know like I don't know, ditzy, buoyant character that didn't really have much depth in them and then I realized I was like, oh, I'm actually just performing for the wrong people and with the wrong people. And I was watching a drag show and realized I was like, I need to learn how to do drag so I can have that microphone because these are the people I want to be talking to. And these are the people I want to be uplifting and making them feel like they can also be really good people because I used to think I was nothing, you know, and I hated myself. And... You know, I don't know if I love myself yet, but I, I definitely feel like I deserve to be happy and live to go, to live a good life. And I'm working constantly towards loving myself, you know, and I think that taking ourselves as these like timelines that are supposed to happen or like something that can be deemed good or bad is so wrong. I never think it's too late for people to change. And I never think it's too late for people to inspire others around them to change. And, you know, like we live in a colonial fucking nightmare city, to be honest. It's horrible to see and to live in and to work around and to, you know, we are all witnessing it. It's like beyond crisis level here. And it's because colonization happens so fast. And I also don't think we are beyond change. I don't think we're beyond getting out of this hellscape, (laughs) you know? And I think that the conversations are starting. And I think the same about myself, because if people were to judge me on how I used to behave, no one would be my friends. You wouldn't be interviewing me today, you know? But I definitely changed. I've grown so much and changed how I treat everyone and myself. And I had to because, you know, like... Addiction is horrendous. It's it takes such a strong hold of people. Like it, it's harder than anything I've ever done. I like, I couldn't stop. I tried for so long. I like, I would be sober for two days, a week, a month, three three months, two days, and you know, and it, I just couldn't stop. It took me so long, and then I just like hit like a rock bottom, as they call it, and was like. I have no choice but to stop, otherwise I'm going to die. And was there
0: was there a person? Was there an event that happened that gave you that like a you know a little? It's a cliche, but like a little coin drop moment or yeah. Well,
1: I attempted suicide. Yeah, and suicidal ideation was something I'd dealt with since I was a kid. I first tried it when I was twelve and had struggled with it since for like the nine years. And then I started using to kind of mask that feeling. And then you know even when I was sober. You know like i still felt that same way like it was just a voice i couldn't get rid of and yeah so i like yeah i woke up in a hospital and i wasn't allowed to use there i couldn't get anything there i didn't have a phone i didn't have an id or anything i was just like i can't call anyone i tried to use their phone they wouldn't let me because they knew i was really high when i got there and yeah, I couldn't use for like a few days and then I had to take a cab back to my house because yeah, I didn't have anyone to call and withdrew like really, really hard. And I just like, yeah, slept in my bed and woke up. I would sleep like 45 minutes a night and wake up in like a, a like halo of sweat in my bed and have to like, change my sheets every day and try to exercise to like stop cravings. Cause I was like sweating out and I had a migraine all the time. I was puking. I was like really, really sick. The withdrawal process is something that
0: in terms of becoming sober is something that doesn't seem to be part of the in vogue cultural dialogue around becoming sober. It's a it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's a part of it that is, 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 not documented enough
1: yeah people think we just like start like playing tennis and like meditating (laughs) you know and then it's like fine it's like but it took me like two months it was like a full three weeks of like really harsh withdrawals and like two months until I could like even like fall asleep at night without like yeah really really overbearing like I would be like yeah just laying on the floor sometimes just like crying and it's all you can think about. And yeah. When I'm, when, I'm,
0: when I'm struck when I hear folks that I know that are sober that have had such harrowing journeys, I I, I really notice within them a sense that they see the world. They become a lot more community-minded. They actually, I think there's something about them where they're able to see, like you're talking about the city and what a capitalist hellscape it it, it, it is. And, and, I, and I'm struck when I hear sober friends of mine and, and folks that I know talk about these things and that they see things, they see the big picture. And it, it, sounds like, it sounds like you're someone who thinks about your community and that you're someone who sees the big
1: picture and sees things how they really are. I think it's about compassion. That's like the biggest thing it taught me. It's just like there, fentanyl was not a crisis when I was using Otherwise I would be dead for sure. I had so many friends that I used to use with and party with that have mostly died. And since then, so like in getting sober, already distancing myself from them, which was already hard enough. And then hearing of them passing, it just like stays awful. And when, you know, if I had been born five years later, I could have easily been without somewhere to live, you know, stuck outside so cold here you know and like those people are just living outside and like how could you not be so angry (laughs) you know people treat people without homes like they chose that path for themselves or something or they like partied too much and it led to them getting addicted to drugs like they don't see they, they think it's like circumstance but they don't realize that like the system is built against them completely there's no reason why those people don't, shouldn't have somewhere to live because like, you know, people can see me like you used to say that I, you know, I seem like this person that has it all together and, you know, like has a clear focus, you know, but that's just as easily me, those people, you know, like I also have that side of me that, you know, and some people can't stop using and don't want to or don't want to, you know, and that's, it, it's like survival, how the hell else are people getting through this? You know, like I have no stigma against people that use drugs. I fully understand it. It's just like a, not a good look on me. (laughs) You know, I, it brings out a side of me that I really don't like. And it makes me more angry and sad and hurts my body. And I can't just like moderate, you know? Yeah. But drug users will always exist and have always used because drugs exist for a reason. They're a symptom of, you know, trying to survive what's going on around us. And they deserve to live with dignity and they deserve to live with their basic needs met and and autonomy and and autonomy. Like don't offer to bring someone for lunch instead of just giving them 10 bucks when they're outside, you know, let them spend the money on whatever they want. It doesn't matter if they need drugs to survive. You know, people take medicine just because they can't go to like a pharmacy and get, like, prescribed something that'll just, like, knock them out so they can sit in their gorgeous bathtub all day. Like, it, there's no difference between that drug use, you know, but somehow, like, drug users that are forced to live outside are stigmatized. And, yeah, I think just being a drug addict, I learned that, like, I love all of those people so much. I, you know, and I'm hurt with them and for them and, you know, try to help them a lot. Like, yeah. I think it's the Embricks thing. I, like, I, I try to do... Like, I try to do $50,000 a year in charity work. Wow! And, and I have been since I was in Bricks. i got to update my bio, actually. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've done some new stuff since then. But, yeah, I just, like, realized that I don't know if it's, like, I don't know what it was. But, yeah, when I got sober, I was like, this is all I want to do. It's all that makes me feel good is, like, raising money for whoever needs it right Fine. now. You know, because I'm able to make enough for myself to pay for my apartment to live in. And then beyond that, it's, like, I'm able to now gather big rooms of people together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, it's a huge responsibility and, like, also an honor, you know. Like, I take it, I, I really try to honor that by, like, people, when people buy a ticket to something, a space that we're holding for them, I try to honor that by, like, really making their lives better, you know, and showing them art that will change their way of thinking and showing them stuff they've never seen before. And and I want to separate it from the,
0: the capitalist e-commerce language of being taken care of and make, making everything easy and frictionless for you. But this feeling of someone has invested in the fact that you're going to come here, and they're interested in your experience. And and that that's how I feel when I enter those kind of spaces. And so I, I love
1: I love what you're saying in terms of how seriously you take it. Yeah, and honestly, like, I'll I'll say this on this podcast, I say it in any interview, any stage I'm on, if there's, like, ever someone that can't afford a ticket to one of my events, one of my shows, any space I'm holding, like, they can come for free, oh, my God, like, a thousand times. They can just message me, anyone can come to an event of mine for free if they can't afford it. Like, it's such a barrier that people face, like, not being able to even just, like, buy a ticket online. You know, like there's there's so many barriers, up, especially for people that need accessibility. And I think that like feeling of being taken care of is also important to go into a space and realize that people less privileged than me are being acknowledged for by the space. You know, like people that can't use their legs, you know, or people that can't see or people that can't hear, you know, like people that are not accommodated for in 99.9% of spaces, spaces that are fat phobic spaces that are racist spaces that are transphobic. Like it's, it's endless. And it, and those heteronormativities exist in queer venues as well. It happens still, you know, like there's still a toxic culture that exists in across all industries. And like the conversations are starting, but the spaces are nowhere near there, you know? And also like, it's really hard for, Nightlife venues that are being only located in spaces that are temporary because they're being redeveloped. every space that queer venue holders have is temporary. And for that case, they're all in old rundown buildings that aren't accessible, because there's no buildings that haven't been developed, that are affordable enough for queer venue holders and artists to be able to operate that people can get in if they use a chair. You know There's no elevators in downtown in old buildings in Chinatown, there's like four flights of stairs for four stories buildings. It's it's one of those things that when I used to go out
0: when I was much younger, it always felt very sexy to be like, you know, go to Toronto or Montreal and go to these places where it's like, it's down like a steep flight of stairs and you, it's totally dark and like there's broken glass everywhere. And now I'm horrified to think how intensely ableist those place those locations yeah, are totally. and, and how dangerous they are for people with all sorts of access needs.
1: Yeah, totally. So I find like making space, we just threw an event uh, last weekend called Soda Pop and um, it's a new youth focused drag event and it's hosted by Minor Disappointment and Queer Based Media presented it and it was just like in throwing that event, I realized, I was like, oh, like, it's not just youth that benefits from, like, a well-lit, quieter environment, a sober environment, like, there was all types of accessibility needs that are met by events that are just geared towards people who aren't adults and drinking, you know, and using, so there's, like, there's a marriage that can happen between those two spaces where you're, like, accommodating for users, and rather than trying to abolish drug use actually focusing on harm reduction and making sure that it's just safe for people to use where you are like you can go into like east side studios if if you're at a party you drank too much you're a little too fucked up you can just go up to a buddy that's wearing a neon shirt and be like hey i'm feeling kind of sick i'm a bit dizzy can you help me get home and they'll be like oh my god yeah let's get you a ride home let's go find an uber for you i'll book one come sit here grab some water you know like that didn't happen 10 years ago when I was like a rave donkey rolling around warehouses in East Eastman, you know, like it was so unsafe or like back in Alberta when I was like face down in a prairie bush somewhere <laughs> at a party, you know, because like I couldn't use safely.
0: I remember for me, the lack of safety felt very exciting. And now oh, totally. and now looking back on it, I'm like, as a as a 31 year old, I'm like, no, I want to build, or I, I want to, I want to be involved in spaces that are a lot safer for the seventeen to twenty-five year olds. You
1: know. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe actually teach people an understanding of like what GHB does to you, rather than just like letting them dose themselves at a gay bar. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, in a urinal stall, like if people actually understand the relationship they can have with these drugs and alcohol and what they're used for and why, what they're, you know, if there's symptoms from them, what they look like, how they can use them safely, where they can get them checked. Like if that was all discussion, like we would just have so many more people from our community, so many less deaths and the the city, the government, the country, the world does not care about drug users to that extent. It's horrible. And you know, like if, what if I didn't get sober? What if I continue to use, I still feel like I would be worthy of life, you know, and I'd be worthy of lunch and dinner and rides places and, you know, to be led into a club, to be able to dance and sit and enjoy a soda pop and drink with my friends and talk and smoke outside, you know, like I still think I'd be worthy of all those things if I was a user, you know, and I would deserve to go to drag shows and have fun and laugh and, you know, shower in my own bathroom. Like, and a lot of people don't think that way. They think that drug users have made some kind of mistake that they need to now deal with, you know, but that's our community. Like, and if they're not okay, we are not as a group yeah. because like, there's no separation from us and them. I've seen people that have come to parties for years and now live outside, you know? And it's because like that slip is, that threshold is so easy, especially when it's like so expensive to live here. Yeah. And it's just, the imbalance is just so profound. It's horrifying. It's like literally bigger than almost anywhere in the world.
0: Well, what, what, you know, these w- events at the warehouse, what level up events, the events that the darlings are part of is part of furthering that conversation because of the normatizing language around naloxone, around drug, safe drug use, around consent. It It is moving that conversation forward. So I'm very grateful that it exists. And I know that I'm not the only one.
1: Yeah. It's like, just like, don't use drugs in a bathroom stall by yourself. <laughs> Tell yeah. your friends you're using. It's way easier. Like it's, it's just so much safer. If they're your friends, they'll be fine. If you're doing drugs, you know, like you can do whatever you want. You're an adult, but like, it's not fine when they don't know what's going on and then you get sick, you know, and they can't tell like what's happening. And And they don't know. It's so dangerous, you know, but it's like really easy for them. If they're like, Oh, my friend's sick. They took MDMA two and a half hours ago. This is what happened. You know, like it's so much safer and it's because fear of judgment and, fear of stigma so like they work off of each other it's people like having the conversation and still realizing that it's actually being around people that are non-judgmental and you know aren't shitty people and judging them for using drugs because really like being sober now people like how do you do it like at nightlife venues you're around people using all the time i literally don't think about it if people tell me i'm really appreciative they're like hey just let you know like i'm gonna be using tonight blah 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 i'm like oh great thanks good to know. Like, these are the two buddies. Those two over there, if you need anything, you can let them know you can also let me know. And like, yeah, usually by the end of the night, they're fucking all sweaty being like, bye, I had such a fun time. Like, getting an Uber home because like, they didn't have to hide in a bathroom and accidentally dose, dose too much and get too fucked up. Yeah. Which is what we're all trying to avoid. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, losing control. And like, I think that excitement that people have behind these things that are like, underground and, you know, like, CD, it's because of, like, the stigma attached to them, too. Absolutely. And if drug use was just, like, more accepted and realized that it's never going to not be a thing, and then it's also not a problem. Drug use is not the issue. Drug abuse is a problem. You know, and drug abuse exists when the conversation isn't understood of what the relationship is with drugs.
0: I feel like we could talk to you for hours, Continental, and just, we'll just, we would just, is, it, we would just be scratching the surface, um, <laughs> and we could go on and on, but I wanted to re- thank you for for being here. Thank you for making the time.
1: Of course, it's thanks been wonderful having me. This
0: wonderful to hear about your journey. It's fantastic to hear more about the darlings and and thank you for your openness and your bravery for sharing so much that you did.
1: Thanks. Yeah, uh, the darlings are doing. We actually got a grant after that whole like process. Um, Gorgeous. Yeah. Get the, that the, grant uh, money. Yeah, the Canadian Arts Council. Shout out to Canadian Arts Council. <laughs> they uh, put out the digital now. Uh, grant application and Kendall Made in China was like, should we do it? And I was like,
2: let's fucking do it. Yes. So we were gonna apply
1: for twenty five thousand, and then we were like, we were like filling out the budget, and I was like, typing the numbers, and I was like, should we just go for a hundred thousand dollars? Like we could easily spend a hundred thousand dollars, and we got it. Oh my <gasps> god! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So That's we got, fantastic. Yeah, we're gonna do an exhibition next year, around this time next year. Um, And it's going to be a two-room exhibition, an hour-long show with a new media art uh, digital projection installation to go with the show. So it'll be, like, an immersive digital projection mapped show. Yeah. The Darlings on a budget. (laughs) (laughs) The the Darlings got paid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it all paid off. Like, we literally, like, it was during Pride weekend. I was setting up an event outside and I like called Maiden and I was like, did you check your email? And she was like, no, I was like, we fucking got it. We got it. And we're going to Hollywood. Yeah. We made it. <laughs> Cafe La <Ritz>. uh, <laughs> um, That's Yeah. So we like, um, we're spending like the next year producing that. And I think it'll potentially be a part of uh, a new festival that I'm throwing called the Vancouver Drag Festival.
2: Oh, yeah, beautiful. It was
1: supposed to happen in November of last year. We had already, like, released promo. We had announced it. We had a commercial, all of that. And then...
2: In addition to all the dragger, you all also, like, digital media artists now? Yeah. Like, it, I, yeah. this is the thing that me, as a designer, I'm like, holy shit. Like
1: digital- <laughs> well, I was <laughs> a like designer before. Techn- Oh, okay. Yeah, so I worked for Canna Clinic, um, uh, which is a dispensary chain, and I was their creative director, so I was doing design work for them, and then I do all the design work for all of our posters, and so that's of...
2: how you were able to, like, figure out all the digital sh- stuff.
1: Yeah. And at the start of the pandemic, I was like, I want to learn how to edit video. That's my goal. That's so, the like, thing. That's yeah. the
2: thing that has really gotten the, the folks that have, like, been like, all right, I guess we're doing this internet now. <laughs> uh, that's, so are you all doing the, the digital mapping yourselves? Like um, no, the we
1: partnered with Chimeric Collective. Oh, yeah. um, so they're going to be, we're pretty much, like, giving them a wish list of what we want. And they're, like, yeah, we gave them a big chunk of the grant to be, like, do your
2: magic,
0: oh <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And the, this this moonlighting of 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 all these sort of different forms is now coming in handy. Yeah. And totally. edi- editing and these digital skills. Oh my God. Yeah. They were they were important before, but as Michelle said, it's like, Jesus
1: Christ, are they important now? <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. Like I have a media company now. Yeah. Oh. And so like it it definitely worked out, and I just get like every workday is different. Like I'm either shooting or. Editing or acting or doing drag, you know yes. throwing parties making posters like it, it every day of my job's way different, and I feel really lucky and
0: oh when nice. I, I i i i love that I, I i I sometimes have to remind myself when feeling stressed or whatever I'm like, okay, remember this is what you wanted actually I say
1: that to myself you all know? the time this is what you wanted i like when yeah. i'm looking in the mirror, and i'm like I have to paint my face again i'm like you just shave your face this is what you wanted you know like I wanted to be performing all the time and you know like being surrounded by queer people and it's like I got it yeah yeah
0: well and without getting too much like penultimate episode of RuPaul's Drag Race (laughs) I like I I think you know that that younger person growing up in the Alberta oil town would be like that is fucking cool.
1: I think so too. Yeah, I, I I took me a while to get there, but I I really feel that way when I'm like getting to host shows and getting to be with my friends. Like I did, when we did the Continental Circus, the puppet show, um, I was just like. Nothing, like, because I also make puppets. That's one of my hobbies. Um, I was just like... Casual,
0: I, I, casual. I, I, <laughs> oh, and like like, like last few minutes of the, of the episode. Like, I also do puppets. It's like,
1: <laughs> of course you do. It's just like, I was watching that, I was performing that show and I was just like, I've never felt more in my life like all things have led to this. You know, like every skill that I've worked at and like learned and every fucking tutorial video I've watched online to learn how to do any little thing, like it all led to that show... And I was just like surrounded by my family and I just like was like, holy shit. I've never been more confident that like this is where I'm supposed to be. Oh. I was go. go.
2: I know I'm not the host, but I I love it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I just feel like so moved because it's been such a fucking crazy two years for artists. Yeah. And it just makes me so thrilled to see people who have been able to come through that and actually be feeling like there, right? In that moment of being yeah. like, this is what, this is what I've been working for. And after being shot on and, <laughs> and having, yeah, like a full year of work canceled in the span of a week and all the precarity and all all the fear, it's just like, it just makes me feel very, very emotional and very like happy to see <laughs> that um, happening now after this crazy time. So I just, I don't want to say. <laughs> no, no, it's Seriously. true. Seriously,
1: no, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm resounding those feelings as well because <laughs> they're, like, yeah, they're very, I feel very lucky. And, like, but also, you know, like, as many artists can say, it's about, like, adaptability. It was a lot of hard work, and, like, all artists just <laughs> had to do, like, five times the work to get, you know, a quarter of the recognition from our apartments. So, yeah, I feel... Really fortunate and, like, even when people, like, I was like, how did you find out about me? Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, oh, my God, that's cool. You know what Continental Breakfast is? Like, I, I'm i still, like, I still get so surprised when people come to anything. Literally. I'll release tickets for something, and if we sell them, I'm like, wow, that's so weird, hey? Like, you just, like, I love that. you know, you just put stuff out there, and, like, you know, some people come. Like, it and, yeah, also, like, when you feel like you have nothing you got to make something. I say that all the time. If you feel like you have nothing just make something. That's
0: that that's beautifully put. It what, the one last question I it, because it, it does seem like there you're you and the darlings and so much amazing other local drag that we could be talking about too is is having such a successful moment. What do you think it is that is bringing people into the door? I, I what, what what is it that's ca- that's getting people's attention right now?
1: I think that it's just like a vibrancy you can't get anywhere else. And you, you can't see this type of expression in any other art form. It's just like queerness at its absolute root and heart and expressed to its 10th degree. And I think people before audiences felt like they were saturated in content. They thought that they had enough art in their life. And being stuck at home made them realize that they needed so much more they needed to be entertained and they needed to And they needed
0: it from people like you. Thank because you. <laughs> they needed it
1: from people like them. Thanks. Yeah, I feel yeah, they needed stuff they can actually feel with and you know, actually be vulnerable with me or with any drag artist, you know, and also feel like they can do the same thing. Because literally anyone can. I started drag f- 4 years ago, 5 years ago. And like, you, you really have to make it for yourself. I was so worried about getting booked by all these people. And, like, I wanted to, like, be on everyone's list and on every poster. And, you know, like, me and PM started Late Night Snack because we wanted to get booked on Fridays, but we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, well, we'll get our own show on Fridays. And it's, it was more a biggest success, you know. And then that led to the Darlings. And, yeah, same thing. We just had to make the space for ourselves. And, you know, now I get booked by all kinds of people, you know, and I don't look at a bookings that I'm not on being like, Oh, why am I not on there? You know, because when people say that, it's like, who would I take off that list that I should be in that place of? I'm like, actually, that has nothing to do with me. You know, like what I do do is just what I create for myself and things that I fit for, you know? And like, if the producer doesn't think I fit for that job, that gig, this interview, this podcast, you know, it has nothing to do with me. You know, like there's, there's lots of people that would have done a great interview today And it's all just about like staying focused on what I'm doing, and it's really working right now. Yeah, you know, I'm not like rich by any means. I'm hoping that comes one day. (laughs) You know, that's the
0: million dollar Canada Council grant. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much. So, where can folks find you? Um, My Instagram is at Conti Breakfast. And um, also at Queer Based Media on Instagram. I have a website too, queerbasedmedia.com. And yeah, they can find me all over town. I I've, I feel like I've been hibernating the last few
0: weeks, so this has really inspired me to get out and see some fucking local drag. Yeah, <laughs> Do seriously. that,
1: people. Yeah, there's shows at, like every single night, and it's it, it's just so meaningful right now for people to be buying tickets. You know, some people aren't comfortable going out yet, and that's totally cool, like... I I definitely get that. And, you know, but, like, the patrons, it it means a lot. People coming out, you know, and, like, wearing their masks and just watching shows, you know, because, like, they're still supporting us and, like, making it, yeah, possible to keep doing events because, like, I don't want (laughs) to (laughs) stop.
0: And you don't have to. (laughs) Well, Continental Breakfast, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. my heart thank you for listening to this episode of really queer voices if you enjoyed please stay in touch with me on instagram at button scott or on twitter at scottygbutton. this podcast has been co-curated by faye nass artistic director of the frank theater with assistance from joanna garfinkel sound design and co-production by michelle cutler really queer voices is made possible with the support of canada council for the arts Wherever you're listening from, I urge you to follow the work of Vancouver-based 2S LGBTQ plus focused theater companies, the Frank Theater and ZZ Theater, as well as the Drag Collective, The Darlings. If you're in a position to do so, please consider supporting or amplifying the work of Urban Native Youth. In particular, their Two Spirit Collective, an organization doing tremendous work in Vancouver's downtown east side with indigenous Two Spirit Youth. I also encourage you to go out and see. Here, support, be challenged by, and laugh with queer art. Thank you for listening.
1: Headphones are on. Should I put mine on too?
0: Oh no, okay. you don't. You don't have to. If, if whatever. It's kind of a fantasy. I feel like it's one.
2: You want to like, yeah. like... seem like a live cool the fan- radio? Yeah, person. live the
0: podcast yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>